Hey everybody, welcome to a very, very special episode of Carnival of Randomness, and I'm just going to refer to our master as Dr. Zoom, because mm. I don't want to uh, confuse anything with our guests, but this is, take note, the day in history, because first podcast of May, yes, but this is our first annual Chaz cast, and I'm turning the hosting duties over to our great Chaz Lockwood, so could you introduce our desk, guest, and bleh, stuttering. <laughs> introduce our desk. Yeah. Yeah, I want to introduce my good friend, and he is a good friend, um, uh, and he is a uh, an indie, indie musician, a music journalist, and a comp uh, compiler of music reissues. And uh, it was imperative to get him on this show because this show has been devoted to uh, people, with, you know, mostly people with Rochester connections who know about the music scene. And we've always been sort of uh, beating around the bush. And uh, it would not be right to not have Mr. Pat Thomas on one of these podcasts to uh, fill in some blanks and uh, also tell us about his uh, fascinating uh, neandering uh in, in creative endeavors so that's why he's he's here with us this today yeah well i have uh, strong rochester connections i lived there in the uh, early to mid 80s i worked at kodak for several years but most importantly i was the drummer and manager of a band called absolute gray that played scorgies dozens of times and shotsies and all those clubs. I also did a little DJing on WITR and WRUR. Um, so yeah, I have uh, strong roots in Rochester. Used to shop at the Record Archive. Probably bought the first uh, 200 albums I ever bought. Most of them probably. I'm out hope, there. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember going in there to get. I used, you you went to concerts there ever probably too because they used to have bands in the back and. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got. I remember getting Kinks tickets there to go see them at U of R and always stopping down there. And I think there was one out, Chaz. I remember there's one article you told me about. They said like the only bands somebody was writing it was some far off thing about the only bands that mattered from Scorgies were New Math and Absolute Gray. Wow. That's not I remember it was years ago. I can't remember. It was like decades ago. Um, hold on a second. Keep that going, and I'll, I'll comment. I just got to do one little uh, tweak here. Okay. Well, <laughs> the thing about Absolute Grey, we, we had sort of an REM sound with a female singer, Beth Brown, who'd earlier been in a Rochester band called Hit and Run that was on one of those. Um, what's what's the big ra Rochester rock radio uh station um, you say CMF. W CMF. Yeah, CMF. yeah cmf right so wcmf used to put out these compilations of local bands and so uh hit and run was on one of those compilations you know um anyway we played we played scourges a lot and we put out a couple of albums we recorded uh two albums at dave anderson's saxon studios uh one of the albums was sort of co-produced with uh Bob Martin of, of, of Personal Effects. The second album was produced by this guy, Tim Lee, who'd been in this Southern band called The Windbreakers with Mitch Easter. And, and we opened for uh, the Dream Syndicate and the Rain Parade and the Long Riders at three o'clock. So we had strong sort of connections to the Paisley Underground on the West Coast, which is probably why I'm on the West Coast right now. I wound up moving to San Francisco in 1987 and I started a label called a record company called Heyday Records. And I put out solo albums from Stephen Roback of the Rain Parade, Chris Kakavis and Jack Waters from Green Are Red, a woman named Barbara Manning. 
so I've, I've basically been in the music business sort of full-time nonstop for, I don't know, the better part of 35 years now at this point. I've always found it to be a bit of a dichotomy in Rochester where you have like the two things. We have the indie underground people and then you right. have the other popular people where it's all the, those bands like REO Speedwagon, Journey, all these. Right. Yeah, well, never the twain shall meet. One of my friends was opening for an Eagles cover band last year. I remember like people I knew, I left after she played and then mm-hmm. they all showed up people I knew afterwards. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I remember WCMF had one or two hours a week of sort of underground radio on like maybe a Sunday night with with Roger, uh, who was the, the black DJ. Uncle, Uncle Roger. Roger. Yeah. Uncle Roger. And then it was also hosted sometimes. I, I feel like it might have been co-hosted by Kevin Patrick of New Math before he moved to New York yeah, City. Yeah, Uncle Roger and Kevin were uh, a pe- uh, teamed up. I know that. Right, right. Um but yeah, but you know the the main thing that was great about Rochester in the '80s to be an indie band is is both WRUR and WITR played almost nothing but in indie rock back then, um, and then you had other things like uh, you know uh, Mick Elber's uh, Psychedelic Sunday, right? And you had other DJs doing sort of garage rock stuff. But um, no, Rochester was a, was a was kind of a vibrant music scene in the in the 80s you know obviously you had chesterfield kings and you had uh, a whole bunch of bands really you know and we still have uh mike murray doing his uh his garage show and uh, right right i think he started off with 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 mick uh yeah mike's great mike's more of like i think he fashions himself kind of like an am radio 60s guy instead of a uh a uh, mellow yeah. 70s uh in guy you know what i'm saying Right, right. It's the whole vibe with him, like his yeah. show. It's the pop culture too. Everything's like nineteen sixties cheesy mm-hmm. pop culture and garage, and he sure. gives the whole environment. I mean, you know, if you know what yeah. it is. But the, you know, the other thing about Rochester in the eighties, you you had, uh, you know, the old Village Green bookstore that had like hundreds of magazines. You know, I, I could get the Enemy or Melody Maker there, Trouser Press. Um. You know, there was, there I used was, to get one called Option and one called Bucket Full of Brains. Yep, yep, yep. Those were floating around. Um, yep. Um, and there were other record stores too. There was the Monroe on Monroe Ave. Was was it Record Time? Mm. Um, that one. I yep, remember. that was. Yeah. That was in Pittsburgh. Well, that was in Pittsburgh, but there was one right. But there was a one in in that sort of little strip of Monroe Ave closer to downtown that has a couple of stores um i think i know what you're talking about yeah i'm, I'm kind of blanking on it um and the bop the bap shop to say the bop shop and there was uh back then lakeshore record exchange oh yeah yeah and they had tons of because i was also a prog fan they had tons of imported uh 70s prog albums that ron sort of- stein i think that was his name the owner I think yes he ron to, stein he moved to texas and he was great we would go in i went to mooney and huh? we would go down there after class on fridays and say what do you got for us yeah and he would turn uh-huh. us on into all kinds of things i guess he he knew king diamond really well i guess he's a neighbor of his in texas now <laughs> <laughs> he read a lot of imported um heavy metal stuff which wasn't my bag but he also 
got a lot of prog stuff. And, and his wife, if he wasn't working the front counter, his wife was. I used to sit around, talk to her and him for hours. They were, they were both very cool. Yeah. Yeah, and he just loved music. That's where I got my first Zombies album. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that's, remember, it was like word of mouth back then, too, because we didn't just have all this stuff. So you asked a friend, what do you listen to? What are you into? He's like, try this. Then you would just go around. It's like almost like sort of like cognitive knowledge in the old days where it's like from tribes where all of a sudden some band comes out, you know it, somebody else knows it, and it's all around because we weren't just listening to the popular stuff. Well, I, I actually, since we're going down memory lane, I really have to acknowledge Stan Merrill or Stan the Man. I saw Stan the Man a couple days ago. <laughs> Stan the Man was the first person to tell any of us about Big Star and Alex Chilton. He was the first person to tell us about Chris Stamey and Peter Halsapple and the DBs. He was the first person who knew who Mitch Easter was. You know, he really, Stan had a big influence on my uh, indie rock tastes uh, for, for about two years, for, for sure. I used to call him the high priest of rock here. Yeah. Because he, uh, he was like Viv Stanfield for me. He got me into that. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it hurt him a lot when Alex died, when Alex Chilton passed away, I was talking to him. And he said that would hurt. I remember he saw him at Scorgies and stuff. That Because I'm a huge Big Star fan. I just keep listening to to them all the time. One of my friends just did a cover of I'm in Love with a Girl uh, later late, late last year. You know, we because we all wanted to open for Chilton, we all did it together. We had like a little super group. It was Absolute Grey, blended with Invisible Party. Um and we we uh, we all took turns singing and playing instruments, and then and then of course Chaz infamously got on stage and played bass with Chilton on uh, I think it was Kiss of Me. Let's let's confirm that with him. Does he remember this though? At the time? Yeah, let's see if, he, if he remembers it. Chaz, hey, did you play bass yeah. with Dylan Alex Chilton on stage? Oh man, that was the highlight of my life. That was the zenith of of everything because you know we had a cult following with him. He's like this. For people who don't know, he's like this southern um, kind of Brian Wilson uh, pop composer, uh, yeah, pop guy, and he's a legend. And he's uh, very iconoclastic and weird, but he does very uh, poppy underground stuff. And uh, they got a big cult following, so I'm I was part of it. And uh, Stan, thanks to Stan, actually, who. Uh, it has no shame in uh in sort of um working on people said yeah we do a cover of one of your songs um and uh you should talk to Chaz. He, he'll get up and, and play it with you so um at the end of the concert uh he invited me up on stage i borrowed mitch uh razor's bass actually right yeah and i there's a there's a uh tape of it on the internet on the internet archive and yep. it's great because it's all the regular people, all our friends, and they're going wild. And uh, the cool thing about it is uh, he stops the song in the middle of the song, not to, to reprimand me, but just to uh, tell me how he wants me to turn up the bass and play it a little differently. And everybody's going wild. It was it was, a, it was so much fun. That was the most fun we could have and still keep our clothes on. It was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I still, uh, I'm still shocked. Like these days, I'll go shopping and I'll hear a Ramon song playing in the background while I'm at Wegmans. 
Yeah, times have changed, man. In 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 the '80s, you wouldn't have heard anything like that in a Wegman's. So, yeah. but Pat Pat's band, Absolute Gray. I'm not calling it Pat's band, but uh, was very Velvets, uh, and then uh, some of his bandmates were throwing in influences from like uh, I don't know, Echo and the Bunnymen and the Smiths. If you don't mind me making these comparisons, no, no, it's totally accurate. But, man. but then uh, fast forward to the '90s, and I'm getting. Uh, CDs from Pat from uh, uh, yes a prog band so uh, I was just looking on your Wikipedia entry you have a buttload of mushroom way more than I thought mushroom releases yeah when I um uh, in the nineties when I was when I moved to San Francisco I started a, a, a sort of a psychedelic instrumental band called Mushroom it's like a little bit of Pink Floyd and Soft Machine a little bit of kraut rock like can and faust um and we wound up getting kind of uh, minorly popular we toured germany we opened for the kraut rock band faust we uh we did a show with kevin Ayers of soft machine as our lead singer we did a couple albums with david allen of gong um and uh it's you know it's 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 kind of trippy kind of like music to smoke pot too i guess for lack of a better word um, we're, if you could, if you could pick out a, fa a favorite one or a starter starter uh, CD, what would just off uh, the top of your head, what? Well, mushrooms. We have an album called Analog Hi-Fi Surprise that you can listen to on Bandcamp. I think that might be one of our best albums. Another popular album for us is called Foxy Music. That's also on Bandcamp. Uh, so just just go to Bandcamp and put in Mushroom. Uh, Foxy Music or Mushroom Analog High Five Surprise, and, and you can listen to this stuff for free, and then you can download it if you like it. Cool. Maybe we'll play a song by that at the end just to advertise it. Please. Yeah. yeah we'll talk about it at the end. We'll just, but I saw Tony Levin Stickman play a couple weeks ago, and he's oh, wow, fantastic. Yeah. But I will do. I can do the whole lyrics for his song Tentacles. Oh boom, wow! Boom, boom, okay. boom. Yeah, I'll do them all. Tentacles. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> well, I'm a big, I'm a big King Crimson guy. I saw oh. Tony Levin with King Crimson many times. I saw the Discipline tour and the Beat tour back in the '80s, um, and then I saw him, you know, since then. And he goes back with me a long time because the first time I saw him was Peter Gabriel's security tour, and I was telling him a couple weeks ago, Tony. We haven't aged a day, but this was like 40 years ago, and I'm like, who's this bald bass uh, dude? <laughs> So, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I saw, I saw that security tour. It came to uh, so at the War Memorial. War Memorial. Yep. And I remember the opening band. They were like banging on trash cans and stuff. Peter Gabriel came out. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was at that show. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. And I remember that was like I think the first album Peter Gabriel bothered to name because I think the record company kept nagging him so much. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, they were like. Was it the Peter Gabriel? Peter Gabriel. Then he finally named the one with Gabe, he named it Security. Yeah, he did three albums that were self-titled in yeah, a row. Yep. Yeah. God bless him. It was like what the, the the raindrops album or the winter after album, the melting face album, yeah. and the exactly. Right. I always have. I always have the best. I tell everybody. I told Tony this story. My friend Sammy does security, and he did it like for Darian Lake, but he did it at the War Memorial when Peter wow. Gabriel played time ago. He likes to go biking, so Sammy is security. He's going with them. He's jogging with them. He's 
thinking, okay, it's the job, it's the job, I got to do it. He keeps up with them the whole way around the city. They get in that little garage. He's dying. Like Peter Gabriel's laughing, and he's looking at Peter Gabriel. He's like, "What are you laughing about?" He goes, first, you know, on this tour, you're the first one who made it the whole way." <laughs> wow! Wow! That's great. That's and Tony Levin goes, "Yeah, that was a funny story." <laughs> you know, yeah. I like uh, Peter Gabriel uh, stuff, but I even more. Than him, I like television. Who opened for Peter Gabriel in Rochester, and I heard they got booed, booed uh, during their set. Didn't they play at like the Red Creek or something? Yeah, but uh, Pat's reissued. Uh, which television record did you reissue? I reissued Marky Moon and Adventure. Oh, one of my favorites. 180 gram vinyl. Um, got to talk to Verlaine a few times on the phone. He was friendly and cranky at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like him. Yeah. It's yeah. one of the most underrated guitarists, I think. I think he's just awesome. Yeah. He's, Sore he's, Spot, though. Sore Spot. Uh, Richard Lloyd's uh, concert at Abilene got COVIDed. <laughs> oh, did it? Oh, that's yeah. too bad. I was there with, I call that the year of concert refunds because I would check my email. It would be Nick Cave refund, uh, Abilene refund. Yeah. Right. Yep, yep, yep. Can't imagine a lot of bookers just threw themselves off of buildings that year. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was not a good uh, no, not a good no. time financially for any of us. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one one little thing out of a million. So, Chaz, what else can we explore about my days of my Rochester connections or anything else you want to dive into? Well, we, I mean, we hung out a lot. We we had um, we had we were sort of uh, you know dorky guys but cool we were we were well liked but we had some wild friends mm -hmm. we had our friend john who uh was uh like a in, infant terrible uh, how do you pronounce it yes infant. and he was always uh getting uh high and doing uh in, um, um, insane things yes True. Uh, taking lsd and going in the subway you know the abandoned subway <laughs> oh yeah and, the, uh, the underground tunnels in rochester showing up at art gale art uh doing performance art like a naked in a, a plexiglass box and uh yeah he was at the pyramid art stuff. center he was at the pyramid arts center which is is the pyramid still around does anybody know uh yeah. I, don't, I don't know if i, I know. it might be in some form somewhere oh okay well john was wearing a trench coat and he threw over the trench coat and he was naked but he had a stuffed animal tied around his waist to uh to cover his private parts that's <laughs> the beauty of being on the scene though i think there were two types one type really really lived it and then there were those of us who just really really liked the music yes true true yeah. but you were saying you made that post about you too i guess one college here they didn't want to pay them an extra 300 bucks like around 1986 they got some local band instead but they could add you too <laughs> yeah no U two played at rit and it would have been uh 1983 uh, 82 or 83, the war album had just come out. And, um, you know, even though New Year's Day was a little bit of a minor hit, they were still kind of an underground band. They were only playing to like two, 3,000 people uh, at that point. Um, and they hadn't really crossed over to WCMF. They were very much a college radio band. And, you know, like them or not, they really, you know, back then to see them in a small place, they really blew the roof off of that place, you know. Um, you know, anytime you can get a 
stadium rocker playing in a small venue. Um, it's it's going to be great. Friends saw Nirvana and Geneseo. I guess there were under 30 people there. Wow. Yep. Yep. And you remember before, like any band, Beatles, Stones, even everybody, they were nothing yet before, you know, for a while, they were nobody anybody heard of at one time. It wasn't you like know, there's a couple of in. bands that uh, played around in our scene in, in Rochester that were, I call them like proto grunge. They were almost like a lot like Nirvana, but they never had a big fancy recording contract. There was a band called the Strip Miners. Yes. And a band called Agit Pop from Albany who would come by. Yeah, and I remember. They were that. really close to that, I think, and it was maybe a couple years, too a soon. year or two before Nirvana. Um, you know, Nirvana, Nirvana had a lot of money behind them. They were uh, David Geffen. Yeah, that's not true. to put them down, but yeah, yeah. Did they get a lot? I mean, I, I'm probably wrong, but some of those bands I always got the feeling they were influenced a lot by the Pixies, just with that soft and loud sound. Sort. Totally influenced by the Pixies, and the Pixies got it from some friends of mine called the dream syndicate. If you listen to the first dream syndicate album called days of wine and roses, they totally do the soft loud thing. The pixies heard that the pixies obviously became more popular. And then all the grunge bands got it from the pixies. The pixies were totally cool. Um, I didn't know all their material as much as, uh, you know, our friend Lene uh, De Palma uh, wouldn't in playing with Jim. She taught me how to play uh, gigantic. It was oh, one of the wow. early songs, but uh, that turned me on to them. But they were from up here in Boston, and I read—I remember reading interviews with them. They were like, uh, they hated the yuppies. They were like, you know, weird weirdos, like freaks. And they're like, we don't like the yuppies in their sports bars and their chicken wings. Screw them. <laughs> <laughs> they were really—they're really smart people. I can well, tell. Kim yeah. Deal. Kim Deal really knew how to make friends the last time they had a Pixies reunion they played here at the Armory. Because she goes on about, well, we played in Toronto, and I knew where that was, and I heard we were going to Rochester. I don't remember if we played there or where the heck that town even was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was, uh, uh, Chaz was in a fantastic band in the 80s called Invisible Party with uh, Jim Huey on drums and, and Stan the man is the lead singer, uh, a few other characters. And they only put out a seven inch single called uh, big man's daughter. And I can't remember what the B side was, uh, but uh, really fantastic. And then they sort of splintered into two bands. One was Lotus STP that was Stan and Chaz. And the other one was the ferrets, which was Jim and Chaz. Um, And those bands had their own, uh, highs and lows, but but Invisible Party was like really. Uh, me and Beth of Absolute Gray were huge, huge Invisible Party fans. Uh, yeah, I remember talking. seeing uh, Lotus at I think it was a reunion at Richmond's. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. that one, and also I think for the Bad Noffs, I think I would put them up there in terms of wacky song titles with the best of them. <laughs> yeah, the Bad Noffs song titles were probably one of their strongest suits for sure. Yeah, you want a dead pope in the road? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll go on. What have you done now? We're talking local, now non-local. You have a big resume. Uh, well, non-local, um, about 20 years ago, uh, I was involved with a reissue vinyl label called For Men With Beards. And we did uh, television, Marquee Moon, television adventure. We put the 
PIL, Public Image Limited, in the metal box. It had never come out in the metal box. And then after that, I started working for a very cool label out of Seattle called Light in the Attic Records. And Light in the Attic uh, is responsible for... Um, we, we reissued all the Rocky Erickson solo albums and uh, they, I wasn't involved in this, but they put out this woman, Betty Davis, who was married to Miles Davis, kind of. Oh, hell yeah. Crazy I've seen a lot of her movies. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, didn't, she, didn't she just die? She just passed away. Yep. Yeah. Um, but Lighting the Attic was one of the, it, you know, was one of the premier sort of reissue labels. We, we did this great album called UFO by Jim Sullivan, who was this weird singer songwriter who disappeared in the desert. Um, I, we, I put out through them public image limited's first edition album, which had never come out in the United States. Um, yeah, there's a picture of you posing with John Lydon. And let me tell you, uh, whatever you think of him, he, I, he's, uh, up there and, and probably the 50 most influential, um, artists of the 21st century well, well, music, did something that most people have never done and i say this and i'm not even a big Leiden fan but I, I always give people respect where they deserve it he did two super influential records one is of course the sex pistols debut and the other one is that second pill album known as second edition or metal box um and what's interesting about them is they're two totally different records it's like the difference between the who's my generation and who's next or something. I mean, obviously, Leiden is the only common connection between his two bands. But nevertheless, most artists cannot do a full 180 degree genre turnaround. I mean, Bowie was great at it. I mean, compare Heroes to Ziggy Stardust. It's like two totally different artists. You know, I, I love people who can do that. And I also love that I don't care idea where I'm going to do wherever my muse takes me. I'm not going to put out something because it's going to be popular. I want to try soul. I want to try something else. I hope some people like it. If they don't, well, this is what I want to do. I have to be true to myself as an artist. Yeah, Bowie was the master of that. Um, you know, and there's there's other people. I mean, arguably you could you could throw Neil Young or Dylan in there, but they, they those guys have never done big genre switch arounds except for maybe Trans and Landing on Water. Um, you know, Pat, you don't be humble, but Pat has bragging rights to uh, be able to say he put out a, a even even reissued a super rare Dylan track on a. Uh, oh, OK, we can talk about that. So I uh, moved to Oakland around 1999 and I started hanging out with former members of the Black Panther Party and I started <laughs> interviewing them about the 1960s and 70s about their struggles against Richard Nixon and J. Edgar Hoover the FBI and I started to realize that there was an incredible music scene kind of influenced by and surrounded by the Panthers there were obviously soul bands there was also uh, this Black Panther known as uh, George Jackson it's it's kind of a long story who he was but he was murdered in prison by prison guards in 1971. And so Dylan, this is in the days where you could, just like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young did with the song Ohio, you could record a song one week and have it in the stores and on the radio stations a week later, like protest songs. So he wrote this song called George Jackson, protest song about the murder of George Jackson. And for all the millions of Dylan box sets, best ofs, compilations, rarity compilations, it had never been on anything. 
So when I did my Black Panther book, I did a companion soundtrack CD. The book is called Listen Whitey, The Sights and Sounds of Black Power. And Dylan gave me permission to use a Dylan track. Uh, and he, he barely charged me anything to use it. So that was- I've great. never heard that, but I am imagine it starts out. This is the story of the George Jackson. You stole my line. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's kind of a different song than Hurricane, but yes, I hear you. Yeah, did you do a book on Abby Hoffman, or am I completely wrong? No, I did a book about Abby Hoffman. Um, I don't do any research on this show, so... <laughs> well, that's all right. We can talk about that. So I was a big fan of Abby Hoffman um, and the Yippies, and his his he had a uh, kind of a partner named Jerry Rubin. Yeah. They were sort of like the Lennon and McCartney of, of the protest movement. So I, I did a... Uh, uh, an oral history. I interviewed a hundred people that knew Jerry and Abby. And although the book is sort of focused on Jerry, there's tons of Abby Hoffman in there. There's uh, pictures and people talking about him. And I, I just love the sort of counterculture political protest side of the sixties. So that's like the black Panthers, the Yippies, Phil Oaks, Allen Ginsberg, John Sinclair, and the MC5. Uh, the Merry Pranksters. Merry Pranksters, the Fugs, uh, all those crazy nutbags. Uh, some of these guys have become my friends, and some of them I've hung out with. Uh, and so my book is, in my book, I interviewed John Sinclair, and I, uh, you know, talked briefly to Ed, Ed Sanders of the Fugs and all those folks. I, I, East Village Freaks, baby, right? East Village Freaks, right. In fact, my next book, is a big book uh, about Allen Ginsberg's association with all these freakazoids. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a counterculture historian, for lack of a better word. That's well, we missed Abby Hoffman. He was supposed to speak at our school, and I think he passed away like a week beforehand. So we were all stealing the posters all over. And I thought oh, he would that. love he would love that act of us stealing the posters. Oh, he would love that. He, he, I so saw... what do we get? The one person I run into who did show up was G. Gordon Liddy. Oh wow! wow a point he taught a class. It. He taught like a poli sci class. You know what's really? funny though? I, I want to ask Pat if he agrees with me about this East Village thing because I don't know it like he does, but I have pretty good uh, instincts. In instincts, yeah. Uh, so there was a folk scene there that Dylan came out of that was sort of uh, proper. It had like Dave Van Ronk and some like folk Bach purists that were going back and. Uh, you know, they were taping people down south and they were almost like archivists. And then there was uh, Joan Baez and they were kind of respectable. But then these, what we call the freaks, they were, right. um, they didn't give a shit. They were more like Frank Zappa kind of people. And he, I think he actually ripped a lot of those guys off. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's not as cool as they are. What do you think about that, Pat? Um. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with you for sure. Yeah. Totally, I think totally. something that's relevant till today would be from the Village Voice. I think the Village Voice, I might be wrong, when Mailer and Jimmy Breslin said politicians should settle arguments by jousting in Central Park. <laughs> I think that would be really good today. Well, the, yeah, I mean, the Village Voice is a key part of this whole scene that, I, you know, we're talking about. Um, you know, people also forget that you know, Norman Mailer really uh, loved the Yippies. He loved Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Um, you know, there was basically you had sort of old school lefties like Mailer sort of cavorting with young upstarts like Jerry Rubin. And, and it was really an interesting time in New York City from roughly 
this kind of starts bubbling around 66, 67, and goes to about 1972. You know, it all it all kind of crashes down when Nixon gets reelected. But, you know, a lot of people forget that, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono immersed themselves in the scene. You know, they moved to New York City in 1971. They immediately become friends with Jerry Rubin. Uh, you know, they obviously write that song about John Sinclair. And and the main reason that the, the government was trying to get uh, Lennon... Um, Deported, wasn't it? Deported was was because, because he was going to lead a whole anti-Nixon campaign, right? Um, so yeah, it was it was really it was kind of disappointing that that Lennon later sort of um, what's the word? He he sort of um, distanced himself from that, or, or he sort of he sort of pretended like he never did it or something. He's a complex guy. Always a very complex like, guy. Just to say the least, and I think it would depend if you met him, what day you met him on, too. It's like the one story I like to tell people. I have, like, this little bag of them. I remember yeah. my brother had a friend. He had Len sign an album, and he didn't look at it. And he went and looked at it when he signed it, Paul McCartney. <laughs> oh, did he really? I love that. I mean, this, this wow. the, the humor of Lennon. In fact, here's one of my favorite quotes about those guys. <clears throat> this quote is from Ray Davies. He said, Paul McCartney was the most competitive person I ever met. He goes, John Lennon wasn't competitive. He just thought everyone else was crap. <laughs> I love the one Rolling Stone interview with him when they go through Beatles songs. He's like, this is shit. This is like, I hate this song. I hate this oh, song. yeah. No, that's great. That's great. You know what? I think that you was know, the point. Uh, like, some of the stuff. Is, uh, yeah, Lennon remembers the, those interviews. To, yeah, that's what it came from. That's what he's talking back. about. Yeah. Yeah. Good and stuff. I also Good think stuff. when you look at, you know, if you as an artist, even like on this show, when I look back at the first shows till now, sometimes you might look back and go, I really dug this stuff. But sometimes you might just cringe at your learning curve when you started out. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I mean, our musical taste is, is often like that. I mean, some people started with Sticks and Journey albums. And, and then the next thing you know, they're they're listening to uh, R.E.M. and the Dream. Dream Syndicate, you know. And I think also a lot of, like I noticed, a lot of my friends who are musicians, they come from musical families, and a lot of us, like, I got into, while well, everybody was listening to that kind of stuff at school, and I went to, like, suburban Catholic schools, so you could figure out the yeah. tape for the most part, and how, I remember making a gun club tape for somebody, and they go, Rob, this sucks, why don't you listen to some good music like Journey? But ah, I got into it because about. my brother was in new math, so I got all this stuff, because of that. Otherwise, I never would have. I would have been a robot, too, probably. Oh, your brother was a new man? Yeah, he was a keyboard player, Mark Schwartz. Oh, okay. Well, I knew. That's why I know all these scourgy things and everything else. This is why I was listening to all this stuff, because oh, I heard it around okay. the house when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute Grace first gig at Scorgies was, or one of our first, was opening for new math. Um, yeah. I still, one of the best stories about them is they played, they opened for Cheap Trick at the Penny Arcade and they got bottles thrown at them. Wow. Oh, brother, um, now, did your brother, was your brother also in Jet Black Bear? Yes, and I guess the reason for the name change, and I actually asked them this, I feel, they said because they were going more, and I think I always used to say they were a bit of like Eddie and the Hot Rods and stuff when they started. But wow. they're getting, you know, with those other albums with Gardens and Sundown on Venus, they were getting more psychedelic and they were thinking, okay, it doesn't really fit the name. No, so it doesn't. Change the name. Yeah, you know right. they're huge Rocky fans too. You I love. Rocky I was going to say I probably own those albums you had, those yeah. reissues. Yeah. I'm a huge Rocky fan. 
Yeah, these are like the albums produced by the uh, by Stu Cook from Creedence Clearwater. You know, the Evil One and um, Don't Slander Me and all that stuff. So know. why did Rocky call it, Rocky's crazy? Let's all agree. But so it wasn't just Rocky and the aliens. It was Rocky and the Believe Aliens. Yeah, for reasons I don't, I'd have to find out. I don't know what that even means. The one thing he never did is he never became Rocky Erickson UK. That he didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> what was his description of Starry Eyes? Too it was like a Buddy Holly song. If Buddy Holly was on acid or something, it was. Uh, I, that was that's not strong quote. It's something like that, like on laudanum or something. Um, so, someone told me this Rocky story where sometime in like the eighties, they go to like a record store uh, in store that Rocky's doing and Rocky's wearing these really cool sunglasses. And my buddy goes, Hey, those are cool sunglasses. Rocky goes, yeah, they're made of human skin. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right. I can't top that, but I had a friend approach him uh, in Baltimore when he played at a club and uh, he looked kind of like burned out and out of it. And uh, my friend said, uh, Rocky, do you know what time? Do you know what time it is? And uh, Rocky, without missing a beat, he he said, uh, "Time is now." He said, <laughs> "Not lying." You know the true. logic. The yeah. logic of that's perfect. That's true. That's true. My favorite is the interpreter by Rocky. My favorite is the seven-inch single of "Don't Slander Me." Is a totally different version than the one that's on the album. The album version is not nearly as interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I heard that. I think I was hanging out with uh, John Armstrong, actually, and Willie, and they played it, and I was like, holy shit, this is great. It's like beatnik. uh, It was greasier. It was. Yeah, uh, it is. It's way greasier and a little less pseudo-metal. Yeah. It was like finger snapping beatnik, like uh, the the bat, the what the uh, bad people uh, in Batman would listen to. The girls mm-hmm. in tights. That's a great review. That's yeah. awesome. There's one, I don't know if you put it out. Somebody's called Don't Knock the Rock. And it's almost like some guy's hanging out in a studio and just doing ad-libbing 50 songs. Oh, wow. No, I haven't heard that one. Then he does one song called Haunted House where all it says is, you know, typical Rocky. This house is haunted. This house is haunted. That's it. <laughs> but he does Angel Baby. And you could tell, like, if you listen to it, that'd be like, you know, if bands are warming up and they goof around. It's like somebody put a tape on while they were just jamming through these. It's very sloppy. It's, like, just fun to hear. He's out of tune. But it's Rocky. What are you going to do? Bootlegs, my baby. Bootlegs. I don't know. Ian, Ian McLoggin got me on that one when I had him sign a CD. When he looked at it, he goes, the heck is this? First he goes, what's your name? Rob. I had a manager named Rob. He ripped me off. <laughs> but oh, then, wow. said, but then, gotta, he, but then he looks at it and he goes, I think this is a bootleg. I'll was sign it anyways. A, was that like a Faces bootleg or something? It was, was a like Faces. It was a German record. And he's, where'd oh. you get this? And I pointed over to Tom Cohen. I'm like, I got it at his store. Don't blame me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Ian was great. I missed him. Bless him. I, feel, I felt like my friend Greg Townsend, they were touring. He's with Nick Lowe and Low Straight Chicks. Ian was going to open. Mm-hmm. Told me the story. They were in Minnesota. Yeah, Ian didn't show up, and it was like, okay, Ian always shows up. And they yeah. find out, found out he had a heart attack going to the plane, passed away. 
Wow. Yeah. And I got to know him. He was awesome because I would, like, he's, he's shopping in the Bob shop. And I asked him, I said, can I confirm a story to you? Uh, Rod Stewart said that the Faces were the first band to get kicked out of Holiday Inn, and then you lied getting back in. You called yourself Fleetwood Mac and the Grateful Dead, and then they got kicked out. He goes, Rod doesn't know what he's talking about. He said, what we used to do is we used to, we got kicked out. He said, well, you know, I threw stuff out the window. We used to register as family because they were on the same label. Then they kicked them out. Oh, wow. Wow. But I love that, like, the firsthand... Just getting able to meet somebody like that, just oh yeah, no, he's I'm a huge I'm a huge fan, and then later he played with the Stones. He's on the Some Girls tour, and he did. You hear the story about Dylan and him? I guess when he played with Dylan, he said that don't be nervous if Bob stares at you because he's really nearsighted. (laughs) Yep, yep. That's that's a great band. That's uh, that's Mac from the Faces and Mick Taylor and Dylan. That's a great combo, man. Yeah. Yeah, on, Pat, did yeah. you go to South by Southwest with Dream Syndicate? I did. My one of my current jobs, if you will, I'm, I'm now the manager of a band called the Dream Syndicate uh, that's been around on and off since the '80s, led by Steve Wynn. And so we went to uh, South by Southwest last month, and they played uh, five shows in two days, um, and we had a great time. And then there's there's a a band called the Continental Drifters that includes Mark Walton from the Dream Syndicate, but it's got Vicki Peterson of the Bangles and Susan Cowsill and Peter Holsapple of the DBs. It's kind of like a super group. So they sound like they're cool, nice people too. I, I, I assume. Yeah, and they have the Continental Drifters, you know, from that lineup, you think of the DBs and the Bangles being pop. It's more like Delaney and Bonnie and Friends or Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen. It's, it's kind of like, Real soulful, gritty, right. swamp rock. Very cool. Yeah. It's one thing I like on the local scene, being a big, being involved with it is a lot of these younger kids, you talk to them, they're influenced by what we're talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're really yeah. like scholars of music. They love Neil Young, like things we're talking about, they would know. Sure, sure. Like one band called Danger Bird, they do this one song, Roll Away. I said, this is like the best song Neil Young wrote that he doesn't know he wrote. You know, I hate to to break this to to you, but I think Pat's met Crazy Horse, too. (laughs) Yeah, this is kind of a funny story. So I can't remember the exact date, but towards the end of the 80s, Neil Young didn't use Crazy Horse for about three or four years. And so Ralph Molina and... um, um, Billy Talbot were getting bored and itchy and so they called Matt Pucci from the Rain Parade and they started a version of Crazy Horse with those three guys and they did an album for me on my, I had a record company I'd mentioned earlier called Heyday Records and so they did an album and uh, yeah I, I met Billy a bunch of times and um, you know very, very interesting dudes you know I mean the thing about these guys is you know they become famous when they're like 18 or 19 and and uh with neil of course and and so they you know they're kind of in their own world and their world is you know getting high a lot you know everybody's always doped up but you know friendly approachable dudes you know it's funny we both are all fans of uh robin lane who's a emeritus rocker up here and she was talking about she knows them too 
Yeah, well, she, she she didn't like them. She thought they were very unpolished and called them almost like punk. You know, like in 67, 68. Right. Well, that was what made Crazy Horse kind of cool. It it was sort of unpolished. I mean, you know, what what Neil was doing with Crosby Stills and Nash was very polished, and then what he was doing with Crazy Horse was was sort of almost punk punk rock, and I think you know, Neil's music is like that. It's either really soft, acoustic-y, like the Harvest album, or it's total balls to the wall, like Reactor. Yeah, Ragged, no actually, Ragged Glory, I'm thinking of a lot, too. Yeah, Ragged, Ragged Glory. You know. and everything. I saw the Ragged Glory tour. That was that was great. I love that. that I love that album. Yeah. <laughs> but I think also... So in, uh, one, in the remaining time, I got to hear a little bit more about the Dream Syndicate. I, yeah. I've heard a track off the new uh, sure. album, and to me, it sounds almost like shoegazy. Well, you know, one of, one of the things about Steve Wynn, and, and this is both admirable and sometimes less admirable, is, you know, he's, he's rarely deviated from his his basic path of sort of, you know, crazy horse velvet underground stuff. And so I love the fact that all these years later with the dream syndicate, he's now not using crazy horse and, and, and velvet underground as a template. There's, there's elements of, uh, I hear elements of Roxy music, uh, maybe a little steely Dan. There's some, some kraut rock in there, you know, um, and so I love the fact that the, the new Dreams in a Good album doesn't sound anything like, you know, any of the albums. That yeah, it's got completely different textures. Uh, right, exactly. And, and show, yeah. shows a real growth and maturity on his part and the entire band, frankly, you know. Actually, you brought something to mind, too, when you talked about Neil Young and Crazy Horse. I sometimes like the dichotomy of experience and inexperience coming together. And I'll use, like him or not, Led Zeppelin, where you had the two guys who were like the pros on the scene, John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page, then the guys from the North Country, and how the dichotomy mixes together in bands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yep, yep. No, very You know, I can't. I can just go on all day just dro name dropping for pat because he's humble but uh i know <laughs> pat lord so zeppelin he uh he reissued uh one of the original guys who was going to be the zeppelin singer but terry Robert, reed uh, terry uh, reed terry reed yeah terry yeah. reed which terry i reed. actually didn't like that album that much but uh <laughs> it's uh, terry and i became uh pals i've hung out with terry a lot terry made this album in 1973 that i love called the river um and I and I actually put that out a few times, um, and it sold very well. And uh, you know, Terry lives in Southern California, and he plays concerts down there. And Terry's a masterful, masterful storyteller. Very, very funny uh, guy. Very interesting guy. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, this is like a generic question, though, in terms of like us growing up and this. All you've seen from the business, and how has it really changed now in modern day? Well, okay. This, this is a very good, generic, very generic. Okay, well, this, is, this is a very excellent rant because we're running out of time here. So when, when we were kids on a Saturday afternoon, like I grew up in Corning, New York, south of Rochester, there was no cable TV, right? So on Saturday afternoon, you had the three networks plus, let's say, PBS, not much to watch. Video games hadn't been invented. The Internet hadn't been invented. So... You could either like, you know, play basketball or something with your buddies, which was not my thing, or listen to music, right? So music was like one of the few choices that we had 
as as teenagers in the 70s. Now, if, if you're a teen, you've got 10,000 million friggin' choices, right? You've got, besides a million cable TV, you've got Netflix, you can, you know, you can sext and text on your phone, you can do all kinds of movie weird crap. And so kids are not connected to music like like we were, you know? And then, you know, rather than uh, buy stuff, people just stream it. Like, like here's, here's an analogy I use. You know, let's say I woke up in 1983 and I said, oh man, I need the Beatles White Album on vinyl. Well, in fact, in fact, that was the only version you could get at that point. So I might go to the record archive and I, and I buy that. And then I see that uh, the Rain Parade have a new album and I buy that. And then maybe I decide I need this Joni Mitchell album. So I leave the record archive and three artists made money, right? Three record companies made money and Dick Storms and the record archive made money, right? Everybody's happy. Now I wake up on a Saturday afternoon. I realize I don't have the white album. I turn on Spotify. I listen to it for half an hour. Nobody made money. Especially like a fraction of a cent to yeah, uh, fraction of a cent. So you follow it. uh, In other words, the the best way for the music business to survive is with physical product when people buy it in the store. Um, you know, and, and those days are just kind of over. You know. you know, and I said I'll bring up that quote again because I thought it was so funny about Record Store Day calling it Colored Vinyl Day. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, I have like eight thousand albums. Maybe ten of them are are colored just by Plus the ones you spilled ketchup on or something. You count yeah, those. Or, yeah, yeah, right. But I mean, you know, this idea that you have to like loop people. I mean, if if a mu- if music is good, just buy the friggin' record on a piece of black vinyl for Christ's sake. Yeah, you know, maybe when it's a novelty, like once every thousand things or exactly. something, then it's fun, but now it's like everything. I'm like, I, mean, I told you, I told you, I just want the album. Okay, if it's like whatever, Remember, I don't care. I just want the album. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave us with this phrase, black vinyl matters. <laughs> I, I will give you I will give you like percent if I make a shirt out of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. cool. Ch- Chaz missed it. Yeah, Chaz, black vinyl matters. Black vinyl matters, my friend. That's boom. Guys, this has been great. I, I miss my days in Rochester. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you guys are doing this Rochester-based podcast. I'm honored. Can you come to be- back sometime? Yes, I would love that. And we, we can do more of this. Well, for now, though, we don't have a private jet to fly people into the studio yet. Not so yet. can you just do it Zoom? Okay, sure. Uh, now, we are going to ask, so we're going to play, if we can, because yeah. we will, but we won't promise, because who knows with the little gremlins. <laughs> Is there something you'd like us to play, like from Dreams and Mushroom, something? Uh, yeah, why don't you play a Mushroom track? Go to Bandcamp. And like I said, there's a mushroom album called Analog Hi-Fi Surprise. And uh, just take anything off of it. There's a song called The Magic of Michael that's pretty cool. There's, there's one called um, The Sounds. Uh, in an, uh, the, the sa- Hold on. This is a great title. We got we to get this title. One second here, guys. <laughs> the Suspense. Yes, The Suspense. Mushroom. Okay, this this is this 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 is uh this is a song titled End All Song Titles. It is there we go, it's coming up. 
Drum roll. A, uh, the evolution of smells in an underground parking garage after an all-night rave. <laughs> That's like Beefheart-esque. It's like making yes. love to a vampire with a monkey on my knee or something. Uh, yes. And then there's another song title. This is, this is one for Chaz. A song of remembrance for a time when wife swapping was considered politically correct. There we go. <laughs> I wonder if that one would get demonetized these days. Yeah, you probably get cancel culture these days for that title. But <laughs> 20 years ago, I put out that title. See, these songs have no lyrics, so you can you can be a little more crazy than you would if you had. Yeah, lyrics. you can. I heard like I was talking to some people like doing instrumental albums, and they said I asked them, "Do you have a problem with titles for your instrumentals?" They're like, oh yeah, a lot. No, I, I, I find coming up with titles is easy for me, maybe because I'm a writer and an author. So, I, you know, I'm probably that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's probably why. Well, well, guys, this is great. I'm going to say goodbye. Yep. We'll say goodbye. goodbye. I see Chaz's rear end. I'm multitasking, guys. I'm multitasking. This was good. Thanks okay. a lot. I appreciate it. We'll have part two down the line. Okay. Bye-bye. Cool. See ya. See ya. Thanks, guys.
are the architects of entropy a collaborative world building tabletop role-playing actual play podcast in other words my friends and i create exciting weird worlds and then we play in them join us for our introductory story as we play dungeons and dragons in a homebrew high fantasy world populated with dwarves elves fairies and anthropomorphic weasels what's going to happen next we have no idea join us and find out architects of entropy a podcast